Welcome to Terms of Service, a new Pornhub podcast. This is a show where I, Asa Akira, a porn star, along with my boss, Alex Kukesi, the VP of Brand and Community at Pornhub, talk with people from various industries and points of view regarding matters of censorship, deplatforming, free speech, and the most interesting thing in the world, sex. Today, we're speaking with Lynn Camella, Professor of Gender and Sexuality Studies and Department Chair of Interdisciplinary Gender and Ethnic Studies at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Her research looks at the adult industry from a cultural and economic perspective and has been featured nationally and internationally in the New York Times, Washington Post, The Atlantic, Rolling Stone, Playboy, among other outlets. Recently, she's been working on a new project as research fellow with the University of California National Center for Free Speech and Civic Engagement. I think if we kind of take a a step back and kind of, you know, go wide angle and take like a, a kind of long look back, we will see that pornography throughout history has always been positioned as a problem in need of a solution. So what that solution looks like has been different at different moments in time. So whether the solution is to eradicate pornography, whether the solution is to try to contain pornography, or some combination of both. I'm wondering, so, like, has has the 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 reason for pornography being quote unquote bad at different moments of history always consistently have the reasons been different or have they always been like this one long standing reason of like X Y Z? You know, I I, I mean, I think uh, it, it's always been a number of different factors, right? That there's you know, the the religious and the moral piece, right? Mm -hmm. You know, pornography and smut Mm -hmm. is immoral. It goes against people's moral beliefs and religious beliefs. That has certainly been pretty consistent throughout history. And then, you know, there's the sense that public expression and representation of sexuality has the potential to destabilize the family, to destabilize Mm -hmm. relationships. And back in the 50s, to even destabilize the nation. You know, Mm -hmm. in the 50s, according to historians, you know, pornography was lumped together with advancing communism, right? So I think that, you know, pornography has historically been this kind of container. Mm -hmm. Um, that people can foist their social anxieties and their sexual anxieties onto. And what those anxieties might look like are slightly different, right? So if we go back to the 19th century, we have to talk about Anthony Comstock and the Comstock Law, which was passed in 1873. And that was a really kind of key law that defined obscenity in the United States and defined obscenity so broadly that it, you know, incorporated literature, it incorporated medical texts, it defined contraceptives as a And who, who is this person? That you- Anthony Comstock. And who is um, he? And, sure. He was a 
um, key anti-vice crusader in the United States in the late 18th century or the late was he the 19th first century. Um, he, he was not the first, you know, anti-vice crusader, but he really rose to prominence and was given quite a a platform Mm -hmm. and he had the ear of Congress. Um, and in 1873, Congress passed a sweeping anti-obscenity law that, that basically bore his name. It was named after him. And, and who, like, who was this guy? Like, what, was he just like a super religious or like, like, was he, was his, you he know, was like not I was fun. Like, we know that for sure. <laughs> yeah. He really sucks. Like, I'm wondering, like, you know how, like, whenever I hear that, like, someone is a philosopher, I'm like, okay, were they like something slash philosopher or like, <laughs> like, it was he like something else, like religious leader slash anti-vice crusader or like, was his, you know, like the, the profession or like, was this a passion or a job? I guess is what I'm asking. <laughs> Well, that's a really good question. Like, what was this a passion or a job? And I would say absolutely both. I mean, he <laughs> basically, he was a former dry goods clerk. What? And the founder, he founded the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. So it was, a, it was an important anti-vice organization in New York. And then he basically appealed to Congress in the 1870s to enact a law that would curb the distribution of obscene literature and anything kind of defined as um, kind of immoral or things that could be put to immoral use. So he was really responsible in 1873 in making pornography a political issue. But, and this is a point I want to underscore, the definition of kind of you know, obscenity was so broad that there mm-hmm. were a number of things that fell under that umbrella, including contraceptive devices. So, you know, and and contraceptive was, de- devices meaning like a condom. Condoms. Um. Uh. What are other contraceptive devices? Diaphragms. <laughs> um. You know, like the, the, it. He helped create a kind of black market. For, for contraception. Would abortion fall under that or no? Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. He, he, you know, went after abortion providers in the late 19th century, early 20th century. So there was a federal law passed that, that you know, ushered in the era of comstockery. And following that, you know, 22 states passed their own versions of mini comstock laws that, you know, was, was really trying to curb the the sale and dissemination of you know a, a bright a broad very broad swath of things considered to be obscene and the real issue and this is the point I want to make it was mail it was things that would be sent through the mail mm. so that that was the concern so in the pre-internet days um there there was this concern with um trying to curb the circulation of things that were deemed pornographic or smut or, you know, and this included, you know, so many things got 
and became part of this, you know, medical texts. This really reminds me of something I heard, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, because this is, you know, my research is nowhere near as official as yours. But I, I heard something like the, I forget his name, but Kellogg's, the cereal brand. I heard that he was an anti-sex crusader, and he had a big part of normalizing circumcision in oh. the United States. Is that is that true? And and I think I, like I heard something like it was the the agenda was like anti-masturbation, anti-sex. And I guess there's like the dry goods link too, because he ended up yeah. being like a cereal guy. So it's like, why are all these people getting so mad selling like grain? <laughs> and then like we're gonna ruin everyone's lives. <laughs> What's really going on? I don't know about about Kellogg. <laughs> that that's interesting. I'll have to Google that later. But you know, they're they're so, you know, you have this figure like Comstock, right, that that was able to get so much leverage around the issue of pornography, but also the issue of obscenity. Mm-hmm. Right. And and that influence it. It was he was so influential in the late 19th century and early 20th century. I mean, he went after people like Margaret Sanger for distributing information about birth control. His reach was very wide. And his influence, I think, is still felt today. So I think, Mm -hmm. you know, the figure of Anthony Comstock really looms large over the history of battles around pornography and around sex information and just around sex, right? I don't think you can really talk about the history of, of pornography and obscenity in the United States if you're not talking about Anthony Comstock. I mean, I was going to say the first thing that jumped to mind when you were talking about the the laws that he helped to sort of put in place or the definitions mm-hmm. and how deliberately, you know, kind of vague and wide reaching they were like, I can't help but think again about Instagram and how deliberately vague the sort of terms of service are on that platform mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of how, you know, like, cause that's what happened to us, right. With our right. platform is they just, you know, finally when they, they did comment, they said that we've just been, breaking the rules or like the violating the terms, but like we were never given like a really clear explanation of what that meant. And we see that again and again, that it's, these mean different things to different people. So I'm assuming the same thing happens exactly with the laws and that the ones that are, you know, that we're still being impacted by today. Like that to me just seems like such like a direct link. Yeah. At the height of Comstockery, he raided brothels, hunted pornographers arrested physicians, battled birth control advocates, and entrapped abortion providers. Oh my God, this guy's like completely undone. What a loser. And so it, it was, you know, to go back to this question, was this his job or was it his passion? It was both, yeah. you know? And, you know, there was this sense that these things were not just immoral and sinful, but they r- risked, you know, just kind of upending, you know, civilization, right? That it was yeah. a domino effect, right? That everything was going to come crashing down, families, marriage. And, and so um, he was very much motivated by his religious beliefs that these things were sinful, but he believed that, you know, they, they really needed to be eradicated um, and made it his life's mission to do that. 
And when you say that, you know, how far his reach is, I mean, you know, Alex mentioned Instagram and how we're still dealing with that today. And then I even think, and I think we talked about this on another episode too, but like when we talk about obscenity within the porn industry right Mm -hmm. now, even, you know, we're so careful about certain things because they fall under quote unquote obscenity according to like the credit card processors and stuff. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, when we when we show fisting, we always keep one thumb out because for some reason when all five fingers or all four fingers and the thumb are all in someone's ca- or you know, cavity, <laughs> bodily cavity, <laughs> it is for some reason obscene. That's obscene. Right. Mm -hmm. Or like, you know, showing any fluid that comes out of a body that's not clear is obscenity. Mm -hmm. And like, so it's still very vague. It's still not Mm -hmm. black and white. It's it's Mm -hmm. not given to us in this like black and white thing that we can understand and follow and Mm -hmm. are happy to follow because we all want to keep our jobs. Right. But like, Mm -hmm. I don't understand, like, what is the point of keeping it so vague? Is it just so that they can be like, aha, gotcha at any moment that they want? I mean, I I think that obscenity historically, legally, has just been so difficult for the courts to define, right? And there's been different legal definitions of obscenity throughout time, you know, going back to Comstock. and, And since then, you know, it's a question that the Supreme Court has grappled with, you know, not substantively since 1973, right? I mean, that's the last time that the Supreme Court has updated you know, um, the legal definition of obscenity in Miller v. California. And what is and it? That, what is the official, like, do you know? I mean, that's like a crazy thing to ask off the top of your head, but. So it's a, it's a three-part test. So let's get to the three, the three parts of the Miller test. All right. It's called the Miller test? It's called the Miller test. It was decided. So Miller v. California was the Supreme Court decision. And in that decision, they developed a three-pronged test for obscenity. And the thing is, in order to successfully, I don't know, prosecute somebody on obscenity, each prong needs to be met, each part of this definition. So in short, it is this. And this is speaking legally, right? Yeah. So the three parts in the Miller test um, is whether the average person applying contemporary community standards would find that the work appeals on the whole to purient interests and that it describes sexual conduct in a patently offensive way and, importantly, lacks any serious literary, artistic, political, scientific value. So, again, it is applying these community standards. um, Would the kind of average person find that the work as a whole Um, appeals to purient interests, that it describes or represents sexual content in a patently offensive way, and that it lacks any serious literary, artistic, political, and scientific purpose. So it's vague, right? What is a purient interest? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What is is patently offensive? And, um, you know, I I think the thing that's been especially tricky for zealous kind of prosecutors is the last prong. They have to prove that the work as a whole has no serious literary, artistic, political, and scientific value. And that's that's hard to do, right? Because mm-hmm. as a whole, like you can't just pick out one scene or one page or one paragraph. So 
as an aside, I'll just tell you a, a kind of story to put this in perspective. Years ago, I did research in Texas, and it was at a point in time where there was a law on the books that essentially made it, you know, illegal to um, sell and distribute products for kind of period interests, you know, that that sex toys were essentially deemed obscene in Texas. Mm -hmm. So I was super curious. I was like, how you know, how, how do they, I mean, they're sex shops in Texas. How do they get around this law? And they got around this law by, you know, kind of using fancy terms, like a dildo wasn't a dildo, it was an educational device. But when they would sell an educational device at this one particular sex toy shop in Austin, Texas, they would actually ask customers to sign a disclaimer saying, <sighs> During the course of advertising, promoting, you know, marketing this sex toy, you know, it, it hasn't been discussed in a sexual way. And basically, they were they were trying to protect themselves. And and they called dildos educational devices because they wanted to underscore that they had kind of medical uses. So they wouldn't run afoul of the Miller test. But what is the medical reason? <laughs> like, respectfully, so, what is... <laughs> <laughs> hysteria? Curing hysteria? Are we back to that? <laughs> so they they marketed cock rings, like, very explicitly. Like, so mm -hmm. they were very, like, they wouldn't talk about dildos, and they were kind of, you know, wouldn't call a vibrator a vibrator, but they would sell a cock ring as a cock ring. And I was like, well, why, why is that? Like, why are you like being very out and explicit about cock rings? And they're like, well, because a cock ring can help men with their erections. You need oh erection to have procreative sex. So there's actually marital sex. There's a medical argument that could be made for cock rings. So, so it's, it's, I mean, this is a bit of an aside, but I, I, you know, the Miller test, you know, it still exists today and, you know, it hasn't been updated, the, the laws on the books, you know, around obscenity since 1973, pre-internet, right? So the obscenity kind of laws in the U.S. don't account for, you know, what do community standards mean in an internet age where mm -hmm. you know, the internet connects everybody globally, right? It, it's very amorphous. I have two questions, I guess, that would kind of stem from that. So for one, how did this all come about? Like, what do you, could you give us like a little bit of context on what like Miller versus California was actually about? And then I guess my second question, because that's such an interesting point, right? That this was, this was so long ago now at this point, pre-internet. And like, I'm wondering, especially now with the current, you know, Supreme Court justices in the U.S., like, do we feel like we're at, like, I don't even know if at risk is like the right thing to say, but I feel like we're at risk potentially of these things being revisited. Like, has, have you seen anything on your side as far as like an interest in redefining that that could pose problems for us? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, Miller versus California was a court case involving um, a California publisher. Okay. Um, and basically alleging kind of that he was responsible for distributing obscene materials. And in that case, the Supreme Court 
upheld the prosecution of this individual, but in the process of doing that, outlined these three prongs, right? The, the kind of purient interest, patently offensive, and that, you know, it doesn't have any medical or scientific, artistic, um, any redeeming qualities, essentially. So um, to answer your question, I think there's lots of reasons to be very, very concerned about the current makeup of mm -hmm. the Supreme Court um, in terms of a right-wing politicized Supreme Court. That said, I'm not hearing anything regarding a kind of um, upcoming case that involves obscenity. Like, I, I haven't heard anything about somebody, you know, trying to bring a case to the Supreme Court that would force their hand to redefine obscenity. So I, I haven't heard any buzz about that. And, you know, um, the degree to which the government goes after pornography and pornographers really ebbs and flows according to who's in the White House. So historically mm -hmm. speaking, when Republicans have been in the White House, you know, is often more of a focus on kind of culture war stuff, including, you know, um, pornography, obscenity. And then when Democrats are in the White House, less so, right? Because it's just, you know, not oppressing. Yeah. <laughs> like they get that, right? Like they don't need to score those points and they, they wouldn't. Um, so I'm not hearing any buzz around that. I don't think the, the, the current concern is the Supreme Court when it comes to pornography, sexual representations, sexuality, sex ed. I think it is these the, the kind of confluence mm -hmm. of culture wars in relation to sex and sexuality right now. So we can think about, you know, Instagram and Pornhub as being kind of one node on a spectrum. But I would say we should we should also think about the incredible uptick in book banning. And we should think mm -hmm. about the degree to which lawmakers are going after drag queen story hour. You know, these may seem as really separate, separate things, but they, they, they all have a lot of similarities, I would argue. Yeah. And you know, like the, so did I hear this part wrong? Did you say that lacks any artistic value? Was that part of what was said? Yeah. So basically the third prong of the Miller test is that the the work lacks artistic work value, right? Lacks any serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. But and that's very, that... very difficult to prove. Sure, of course. But like, doesn't, am, am I like misinterpreting this? Like, does that mean like art gets a hall pass? Anything that's considered the quote unquote porn art? is under art? Right. Is that's what fun? I'm saying. Like, is, isn't porn art or no? Well, I think people have certainly made that argument in court and, and made it successfully, for sure. Um, certainly, if we look at, you know, the history of culture wars, if we go to, you know, the 1980s and, you know, look at um, culture wars during the presidency of Ronald Reagan, um, there, there were, you know, Robert Maplethorpe was mm -hmm. under fire, right? Because of, you know, he, a photographer and his, you know, photographs, artistic photographs of, um, nude men uh, just were so out there for people, right? Yeah. So his art shows were censored. Galleries were shut down. 
Um, you know, during the 1980s, people, politicians went after the national endowment of, of the arts, right? So no, it does not mean that that art is safe, but, but it means that when charges might be brought mm-hmm. against a pornographer or an erotic artist, they can make a certain argument about the artistic merits. Mm-hmm. And that argument about artistic merits destabilizes the the kind of argument about obscenity, right? Because they're able to actually kind of say like, look, you know, we can talk about this, you know, uh, body of photographs historically mm-hmm. in terms of how these male nudes resemble Greek statues, yeah. and, right? Mm-hmm. There's a whole body of art history that they can legitimately point to. So, you know, it's interesting you know, in terms of some relatively recent, as in the last decade, higher profile obscenity cases that were brought against people like John Stalliano, for example, and that got, you know, kind of thrown out of court. The owner of Evil Angel, for Mm -hmm. anyone that doesn't know. But they actually, you know, brought in as an expert witness, Dr. Constance Penley, who has, you know, since 1993 taught a course on the history of pornography as a film genre and a form of popular culture. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, having somebody with a PhD with a background in rhetoric and film culture, she can kind of situate historically how any number of pornographic films are drawing on film history and visual culture. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so, so those, um, those things become really important in undermining arguments that prosecutors might be trying to make about something being obscene. It's just, it's really hard to prove. It's super duper hard to prove. Yeah. So it feels like there's like this struggle or I guess like, or like a job that we have to do as far as like, like acceptability. Cause it's, that's really interesting what you mentioned about like the Maplethorpe stuff, because there was actually a show here a couple of years ago in Montreal where they were showing a huge collection of his work, the photographs. And I remember so distinctly when they were advertising it, they were not using the mail form. They were using some of like the photos of his flower work and like that kind of thing. So I was like, Ooh, you're getting yourself into a bit of a surprise. Like, and I remember too being at the show and there were like a lot of like really shocked people there. Cause like they thought they were coming in, I guess maybe they didn't look too much into it, but I was like, yeah, that's a, that's a man getting fisted right there. Like, next to the, you know, the lilies or whatever. So it's, it's, and, but I thought that that was such an interesting move that I guess like the museum made really deliberately as far as how they were rendering the show, like acceptable in the marketing of it by not using what he was so famous for. Like everyone knows, like, yes, he did beautiful subject matter of flowers and all kinds of other still life, but like it was the male nudes that were you know, that's what he was so known for. So mm-hmm. I thought that that was, that was really, yeah. really interesting. Yeah. And it would have been really, really interesting to be in the room when the marketing team mm-hmm. was having those discussions for sure. around how do we promote this show, right? Because those probably, those weren't 10 minute discussions. I right. bet those were hours long. Yep. I bet there were multiple discussions. A very deliberate decision for sure. Yeah. yeah. But the, the one thing that I want And I think this is so important and really, you know, is really important and relevant to these kind of 
you know, kind of the new war on pornography. And I think, I think we can call it that, you know, there, there's, there's been, you know, kind of various wars Mm -hmm. on pornography that have taken shape in different ways at different points in time. And we seem to be in a new era. And one thing I want to say is we've talked about the history of obscenity with Anthony Comstock. We've talked about the 1973 Supreme Court decision in Miller v. California. But as I mentioned, it is very difficult to successfully prosecute somebody for obscenity, right? Mm -hmm. It's just super duper hard. So that is why I would argue we have seen in recent years different tactics. What do you mean by different tactics? Like, I think I have an idea of what you're saying, but I'd like to hear. So even in the the 1970s, right, with, you know, um, the film Deep Throat and, and moving through the 70s of, you know, kind of X-rated films being shown in movie theaters, and you see like the the beginnings of an anti-pornography, you know, a feminist anti-pornography movement. Um, there was this desire to to kind of it, it was very kind of censorship focused, right? It really was trying to make a case not just that these things were harmful to women; these representations. Um, showcased in pornography were harmful to women and relationships, but they were potentially obscene. And that just didn't get a lot of traction. They Mm -hmm. weren't successful in doing that. And so it's not like hitting the way it used to. It's not exactly, (laughs) it is not hitting in the way they used to. So, okay, we're going to go back to the drawing board. We're going to recalibrate our strategy. Let's frame pornography as a public health crisis. Mm. Let's make that case to lawmakers that pornography is responsible for all sorts of things, Mm -hmm. right? It's responsible for the divorce rate. It's responsible for erectile dysfunction. It's responsible, you name it. We can blame it. The spread of STIs, right? Even like OnlyFans, I've heard these like, you know, if you want to think about it from like a capitalist perspective, I've heard these arguments that like, people are like cheating the system, quote unquote, where it's like, well, how come we're encouraging people to like go get university degrees and like do all this work and like forge a career path for yourself. But then you can kind of like jump the ladder and just make an OnlyFans or whatever, or shoot some porn and you're making all this money and like, it's not fair. And it's just like Mm -hmm. these ridiculous, (laughs) it's ridiculous, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's an absurd argument for so many reasons, because, I mean, I don't see people making that argument about, you know, the ways in which, you know, white men come into all of their millions or billions of dollars, Mm -hmm. right? Like, we just expect that. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about the stock market. Yeah, crypto bros, (laughs) like, that's fine. that's such a gendered kind of, you know, bizarro argument, although I know I know people, you know, make make that argument. Mm-hmm. So so I think that this strategy, I think the strategy of going after pornography through legal mechanisms like obscenity, just it it doesn't it doesn't work. It doesn't And nowadays it it would be like the sex trafficking rhetoric, right? Or the like, like porn equals 
all porn is sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. All porn is abuse. All the production, every porn production is, you know, rape or, you know, right. it, and I think that's like what it is now. Right. Yeah. And, and certainly again, those arguments about, you know, pornography being the visualization of sexual assault, the visualization of rape, the visualization of harm to women. Those are not new arguments. What's different is like the way that those longstanding arguments are now grafted onto kind of new scary formations, right? Mm -hmm. Everything related to porn and sex work is conflated with trafficking or conflated with, you know, um, undermining public health or, you know, with, um, addiction, mm-hmm. addiction, Whatever. You know, so it's, it's all, I think, you know, part of, of the same, but I think this new war on pornography, folks that are very involved in putting forward these arguments in an effort to hamstring the porn industry and the adult industry their, their new strategy is, um, you know, really putting pressure on credit card payment mm-hmm. processing companies and social media companies, right? And, and so they, they found, like, a new, very effective linchpin, right? Like, that, that they, this is getting kind of traction is to make... Companies and social media platforms very wary, if not downright afraid, of doing business with adult companies or providing a platform for sex workers and adult performers. And, and you know, going back to something you said about the vagueness of terms of service, I mean, there's no way that's an accident. Of right? course. They're written deliberately vaguely because they want to be able to make those subjective decisions in the moment when they feel they need to make those decisions for, you know, what they see as, you know, the the best decision for their company. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, my understanding of Pornhub being kicked off of, you know, Instagram and correct me if I'm wrong, was that they were asked, right? Like, what did we do wrong? Yeah. Like, what, mm-hmm. do we have to, what do we have to do? And and there was just, like, no information that was provided. Yeah, right? exactly. Like, it's been, like, mm-hmm. very frustratingly, like, obscure and opaque. Mm-hmm. And just, like, yeah. there's no um, there's no direct line of communication, which, like, right. is very weird and scary. And that's by design, of course. right? I mean, they're real people writing policies in certain ways, making decisions, making determinations, um, reaching out to you or not, mm-hmm. right? Like those are decisions that that are being made. And you know, for me, you know, the attacks on pornography have been longstanding. You know, I, I've said this a few times now, and and they've taken different shape in different moments in time. But I think it's super important, and this is how I see it as, you know, it's easy to focus on pornography because pornography gets the headlines, right? Like, we hear about this. We Porn is on people's radar because it's, it's 
so politicized and it's, you know, sexuality and sexual politics. It's such fraught terrain. But you have journalists that write about pornography a lot yeah. because it's clickbait, right? It's mm-hmm. so clickbait worthy. But to me, you know, a lot of the the war on porn, it's it it's part of this larger war on sex and sexuality that manifests itself in different ways. You know, I don't think that we can separate that from mm-hmm. The, the uptick in book banning. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. it, book banning in this political climate is almost at like epidemic proportions. Yeah. I mean, it's everywhere. And the reason why I say we need to be able to think and talk about Pornhub getting booted off of Instagram, you know, in a kind of connected to this rampant book banning that's happening. Because if you look at the reasons why conservative parents and conservative religious organizations are going after books in public high schools or going after books in public libraries, oftentimes they're describing those books as being pornographic. Mm -hmm. That's the rationale that they use. This book is pornographic. Well, it's not pornographic in the sexual sense or pornographic like used. Well, again, I think it's probably a broad reach of the, like of a deliberately broad yeah. application of that as a descriptor Absolutely. and like and, it's and, just and so just, scary it just makes like I don't know it feels like so like witch hunty and then like mm-hmm. also just like the visual of like okay we're gonna round up all the books and like put them in a bonfire because it's like dangerous like this it feels like we're going like literal centuries and, back it's yeah, really it feels scary. really unbelievable but I'm wondering, like, is, okay, so I, I've, for sure, I mean, you can't be on, you know, any type of media right now and notice this, you know, as you say, an uptick in book banning. And I think, and maybe other people out there feel this way too, I assumed this was something that's always been going on and we just are more aware of it now because of social media, the internet, blah, 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 blah. But is this like actually an, is there actually an uptick in book banning right now? Oh, yeah. I would encourage anybody. That's so crazy to me. Yeah. I mean, I would, I'm sitting right here at my computer and I'm going to put uptick in book banning into Mm -hmm. my search engine. Book bans are on the rise. First thing that comes up, Pen America, um, which is, uh, it tracks all sorts of things um, regarding kind of censorship and free speech issues. But they, they, earlier this fall, put out, you know, an, an entire, uh, report. I mean, so it's been written about extensively in the New York times, Mm -hmm. in the Washington post. And again, it's part of, um, you know, what we're seeing across the country, right? Like in Florida, the don't say gay bill, the kind Mm -hmm. of legislation going after like drag Queens reading, you know, kids books. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so it's all part of kind of the way in which gender and sexuality mm-hmm. right now are really considered, quote unquote, kind of red meat culture wars issues. What do you mean by red meat? Well, that they're going to, that they're easy to take. Like low hanging fruit? 
Low-hanging fruit, exactly. Yeah, so it's easy to go after mm-hmm. drag queens because mm-hmm. you can construct all of these kind of gender and sex mm-hmm. panics. Right. right. It's mean, easy to vilify someone that's already, you know, so marginalized, right? And that's not an old tactic either as no. far as like, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, in this case it's drag queens, but before it was like, oh, you can't leave children around gay people because all gay people mm-hmm. are pedophiles and they're going to want to harm your kids or abuse your children. And it's yeah. it's really interesting that like, you know, and I know that we've, we spoke about this a little bit previously before we started recording, but just the, the way that like children get tied into these things and how, you know, especially where, where pornography is concerned, there seems to be like, you know, not that it's not a serious issue, of course, like as far as we're concerned, and I think that this can safely be said about most people in the pornography industry, that there is absolutely no interest or value in having children access our products or access our site. And we've, you know, gone through pretty big efforts to protect, you know, to, to make sure that the site is set up in such a way that when you enact the proper filter softwares and, and all that other good stuff that like, it's not accessible to children. Um, and that similarly, we have lots of rules and policies in place for screening to make sure that children are also not the subject of abusive content on our platform. But, you know, and that's, it's funny because when we're thinking about, you know, some of the, the forces that are, you know, working against us, like certain groups or individuals, like it is actually something that we have in common is that (laughs) we want to protect children. We really do. Like we don't want them on our sites. We, you know, we're, we're, we have a lot of, of, of work that goes into making that happen through different partnerships and, you know, the products that I mentioned previously, but there seems to be this commitment on the other side to portray us otherwise, like, uh, or, and when I say us, I don't just mean porn up. I really do mean the larger industry that like this, you know, it's, it's, again, it's like a focal point for us that like, that's what we want when it, it could not be further from the truth. So I was wondering if you had any commentary about that. It's like the Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah. We're protecting the children. No, we're protecting the children. <laughs> I mean, two points that I'll make, and they're really basic points, but I think they need to be said and they need to be underscored. It's called adult entertainment for a reason, hmm. right? Adult entertainment, one. Two, child pornography is legal. <laughs> you know, it, it it's illegal, period, you know? But I think, again, um, historically, anti-pornography organizations, they have been very skilled rhetorically at being able to make arguments about harm. We mm-hmm. saw this in the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s, anti-pornography feminists did a really good job about making a case for the ways in which pornography harms women, right? That, that what, what you were kind of, what you were watching was women being harmed. There was a direct line from what you were watching to kind of harmful society. They did a good job making that argument. And I think, um, why is that so easily believable? I guess like I can kind of, 
listen, like, I'm not trying to, like, sympathize with anyone that's, like, anti-porn or anything like that. But, like, I can almost understand why a man would, like, believe because we are taught that women are do not enjoy sex. We give sex to men. I can almost believe why a man conditioned that way might believe, okay, you know, no, no woman in porn in a porn production is enjoying it, you know, and they're all victims. I mean, yeah, like, I don't understand how a woman could believe that. Like, why is it so easily believable? Why do they want to believe that? It was a dark dark chapter in second wave (laughs) feminism where like, no, where again, where there was like this really interesting, like unlikely bedfellows where certain extreme, you know, parts of, of these organizations were, aligned very much with, you know, religious groups as far as, um, or Puritan causes like with their, and I mean, I have like a very baby bachelor's in women's studies. So Lynn, I'll let you, (laughs) I'll let you, um, maybe explain that a little bit better, but yeah, that was something that I found like so surprising. Yeah. Like it's like the two opposites of the spectrum are like meet in in a ring. (laughs) It's a circle. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, we talk about pornography in isolation at our own kind of peril. Like, I think we need to talk about pornography as being one form of sexual representation, explicit sexual representation that exists in a cultural world in which people lack comprehensive sex education, Mm -hmm. where sexuality is stigmatized, particularly female sexuality, where there is a really strong and durable sexual double standard that gives men sexual agency and doesn't give women sexual agency. Like to me, like when we say, my gosh, you know, how, how is this rhetoric? What, how does it take hold? Why is it so successful? Mm -hmm. How are they able to mobilize it Mm -hmm. again and again and again and mobilize it in a way where they're effectively banning books, where they're shutting down kind of, you know, um, drag king store, drag queen story hours where they're, you know, getting new forms of legislation passed, um, where they're getting, you know, I, I, I'm old enough to remember, you know, uh, ballot measure B in California, Mm -hmm. right? Like these things that get traction. Um, And I think they get traction because the anti-porn rhetoric like links up to other powerful rhetorics, whether that's kind of conservative politics and ideas about the family and so-called family values or whether it's morality and religion. Right. So these things don't exist in isolation. They get their strength from their ability to be articulated. Right. To connect with other powerful discourses. And I think all of this gets traction because we live, at least in the U.S., in such a highly confusing, contradictory Mm -hmm. uh, environment when it comes to sex and sexuality. And I say that as someone who who lives and works in Las Vegas, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and, and, and I... I see my my students, my 18, my 19, my 20-year-old students who have grown up their entire life in Las Vegas, and they are at once bombarded with kind of hypersexual representations. You know, they work on the strip as cocktail waitresses, and they see the billboards, and that's one part of their existence. And then the other part of their existence is no sex educa- education, mm-hmm. right? Like, no, like, you know, the most either, dangerous uh, combination. 
Yeah. And so they're trying to find their way as young people in a hyper-sexualized city, which is part of a kind of hyper-sexualized media culture at the same time where they don't have basic, basic, basic information about their bodies, how their bodies work, about sexual anatomy and physiology. And, you know, it, it just... Um, what you're saying, you know, I think, could also, exactly the way you said it, could completely word for word apply to internet porn. I mean, we are, we have all this, we have all the porn in the world representing every type of sex available at the tips of our, at our fingertips. And yet our sexual education is so lacking that we can't even as a society like separate or, or understand that like, oh, because one person likes this, it must mean everyone likes it. And it, it's, we're, we're so dumb when it comes to sex. Right. And it's, it's, it's so not dangerous. just that you know, that, that, you know, young people grow up in, you know, a culture in which sex is scary and, mm -hmm. you know, proceed at your own risk. And they internalize those messages, you know, and then when they have the opportunity to kind of, you know, see sex, maybe through internet porn, they don't have the skill set to make sense of it mm -hmm. because, we live in a society that lacks basic media literacy, and we certainly don't mm -hmm. live in a society that has basic porn literacy. And you might say, whoa, how did we get to talking about sex education and porn literacy when we started out talking about, you know, obscenity? Because they're all related, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, we, you know, kids grow up lacking just basic, basic information. They grow up being instilled a lot of times, this has not gone out of vogue. I see it in my young students every day with fear and shame mm -hmm. around their own sexuality, which is just exacerbated if you um, are, are a girl or a young woman in this culture. And, and you know, basically, anti-pornography messages tap into that, mm -hmm. tap into the ignorance, tap into the shame, tap into the stigma, tap into people's inability to talk about sex, to talk about sexual consent, mm -hmm. you know, um, all of these things. So, so, you know, going back to your question, like, my gosh, you know, how have these people been so successful? Well, it's so successful because they realize that they have something that is working to their advantage. And that mm -hmm. is they are able to step into a culture of sexual shame and ignorance and fill it with the messages that they want to fill it. Who is at the top of this anti-porn pyramid? Like, is it, is it religion? Is it capitalism? Like, is it the patriarchy, like I'm, or is it all of it? Or it's is an it intersectional issue? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really hard to to pinpoint just one because I think they hook up, you know, in, mm -hmm. so to speak. You know, they they might not share always the same kind of uh, concerns, but we certainly know historically that by the early 1980s, there was a lot of overlap between kind of religious conservatives regarding pornography and anti-pornography feminists, right? So I think it's really hard, if not impossible, 
to separate separate out those forces. But but certainly there are you know organizations that um, have uh, done a good job in recent years getting a stronghold on the issue, right? They're mm-hmm. getting some traction. They've been able to successfully put pressure on credit card, you know, processing companies, for example, put pressure on social media platforms, for example. So I think that when we think about the new war on porn, you know, it, it's no longer kind of going after porn mm. for being, quote unquote, legally obscene, mm-hmm. right? So it's no longer the obscenity argument. It's this kind of, ooh, you know, you don't want to be held responsible as a mm-hmm. social media platform mm-hmm. for the videos or for the content that a user is posting, be wary because we could come after you. So I think there's this caution that also dovetails with capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, there is this, these are, these are capitalist entities that, and, and when it comes to media platforms and media companies, they always have their eyes set on being an environment that is hospitable for advertisers, you know? Well, that Um, kind of like reminds me of something else you were saying about how, you know, porn is easy clickbait, like you said. Sex is easy clickbait. But it's also kind of like, that's not, it's only true if it's a negative story about porn, if it's a negative story about sex or, you know, a woman in danger or whatever. Like, I I know Alex talks about this all the time. I could speak to that a little bit. Yeah. So like we like to touch on one of your earlier points about, you know, people taking cues from pornography as um, a stand in for sex ed. Like that's something that I think, you know, the industry has certainly faced as a criticism for a very long time. And on our side, like that's something that, you know, we do see the importance of separating pornography as entertainment, like you said, adult entertainment and education, which is like why we have like a whole section on Pornhub called the Pornhub Sexual Wellness Center that is really just about that. And that's, you know, it's a project that I love that we we've had going for a couple of years now that really focuses on, on all kinds of different topics pertaining to sexual health and sexual wellness. Mm-hmm. And we've done a couple of other things sort of like springboarding from that, like as far as trying to educate people on you know, some of like the, the stuff that we really do wish that people knew better as far as like how we operate as a platform in terms of mm-hmm. our trust and safety policies. Like the fact that like, you know, before you can even upload to Pornhub, you need to become verified. You have to go through a really stringent verification mm-hmm. process. After that, you can't just upload content. The content that you, you know, attempt to upload then has to get screened through a whole bunch of different, against a whole bunch of different databases and then also manually reviewed by, you know, our compliance team. Mm-hmm. And people just don't want to hear about it. Like mm-hmm. when, whenever we, whenever, like, cause I also work very closely with yeah, like, like why our communications and our PR team of information. Cause it's not, it's not sexy. Like, it's like, we're doing, you know, we're doing the right thing. And people like, we do get, you know, media stories placed about it for sure. Like we, we, we got like a really great write up in the Hollywood reporter about the, the, the project that we worked on with Liz Goldwyn on, you know, called Pornhub literacy, 101, mm-hmm. which is exactly that, like this, this really mm-hmm. nice looking series that we did of, of videos that we would really love people to watch more to help them better understand 
not only how Pornhub works, but I think it says a lot about how like, you know, it's just like helping to demystify some, some general misconceptions about the industry, but it's just, it's not as yeah. uh, enticing for sure as some of the negative stuff. For sure. I mean, there's a sense, I mean, I'm just speculating here of, of kind of like, you know, the uphill battle or swimming mm-hmm. against the tide, right? Like that, that you're, you know, constantly trying to make these interventions, these interventions into the, the kind of conversation into, you know, the larger media conversation. And, you know, I think that we need more good journalism about sex and sexuality, mm-hmm. including the adult industry. And, mm-hmm. you know, unfortunately, we've just seen like some of the best sex writers of the last decade, you know, they've, they've been let go from their platform, yep. or they've moved on to different careers. And I, and I do think, you know, there, there, there is a void right now that, you know, really does need to be filled by people who are good writers, smart mm-hmm. writers, mm-hmm. and that, um, are willing to go behind the scenes and tell the stories of sex workers and of kind of adult industry kind of companies broadly defined in ways that can kind of intervene into, yeah. you know, the what you're identifying as the, the kind of role of the media in shaping mm-hmm. larger frameworks for understanding sex is bad, porn is bad, sex is harm, porn is harm. And, you know, that's, that's a bigger issue, but one that I've, you know, always felt um, really strongly about, again, you know, as someone who has spent the last 15 years living and working in Las Vegas, I mean, there were a handful of years where I wrote a column on sex and culture for alt weeklies in Las Vegas, because I was so tired of reading terrible stories about <laughs> sex and culture in Las Vegas. Yes. And literally, I was like, okay, I'm not seeing the media that I want to see. I'm mm-hmm. not seeing the stories that I want to see. I'm going to be the media. I'm going to like pitch a column. I'm going to get out there, talk to people, write the stories. And um, we're seeing less and less of that. Right? I know it's so, so that, scary. We need void, we need more. Yeah, that void is really being um, taken up by you know really alarmist op eds by you know mm-hmm. the kind of <laughs> negative clickbaity article uh, clickbait like art um, articles and things. So you know it's it's a it's a it's a larger issue. I mean, I think you know it's really important to have these conversations and it's really important to make sure that when we talk about the politics of porn that we're also talking about the politics of sexuality more broadly and the politics of media culture more broadly. For sure, cuz I I mean I see, you know, cuz again like I work very closely with our comms team and like even just like when I see a list of questions from so many reporters, I'm just like, oh man, you really don't get it. Like you're mm-hmm. just really coming in mm-hmm. hot and like, this is going to suck. Um, I'm going to do, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to do our best mm-hmm. to like get you to a place where we can hopefully like engage with you in a way that will level the playing field a little bit so that mm-hmm. we can at least get a fair shake here. But yeah, yeah that's, that's such yeah. a good point. If I had a dime for every time a journalist asked me, is X, you know, is stripping, is porn, is, Ooh, yeah. you know, whatever, is X empowering or exploitative? Like if I had money, <laughs> and it finally got to the point where if a journalist would ask me that, I would say, so 
let me tell you what I think is interesting about this. I would just sidestep the question mm-hmm. and I would say, this is what I think is interesting about the story that it sounds like you're trying to write. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Here you go. I would just like, it got to the point where I wasn't even going, because I, it was just like. Like, how do you answer that question? Like you can't. But also it's so, it's so uninteresting. It like is. That's, yeah. It's not going to tell you anything about what kind of. A, a social or cultural kind of practice or phenomena really looks like, right? And it's so opaque and mm-hmm. not connected to anything. It's so generic. It's like they Googled, like, what's a good question to ask somebody about sex? And that's like the one question that comes <laughs> up time and time again. Um, but it just goes to show you, like, I mean, you know, like no offense to these reporters, but it, because it's all of us, like it just goes to show you how much we don't know about sex because we would never be like, is, is, um, accounting empowering or exploitative? Like we, we just wouldn't even care to ask those questions. Right. right? Like, right. It's so yeah. do you feel, do you feel that all being said and, you know, uh, this lack of writers and, um, like, do you feel hopeful? Do you feel like we are headed in a basically, you know, I hate to even use this cliche anymore, but, um, what was that show? Um, Handmaid's Tale. Like, are we headed there? Like what, how do you, um, what do you, what's in store for us? And like, what should people be paying attention to? Like, hmm. um, Yeah, I mean, I hate to be a Debbie Downer. I think that there are a lot of really kind of alarming things happening right now. And and they're not they're not incidental things. They're not like, you know, things that we shouldn't be paying attention to. I mean, there are legislative efforts afoot in many states across the United States to, you know, ban transgender youth from receiving health care and to stop, you know, drag Mm -hmm. queen story hours. And, you know, I think that we should be paying close attention to these things because, again, as I've been kind of saying for the last hour, they're not at all unrelated to kind of the larger, you know, the the larger war on porn is uh, is a war on sex Mm -hmm. and it is a war on gender. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we notice it because it's it's a a more extreme version of that. But there are lots of things happening right now that I think are are very alarming. And um, yes, we should be paying attention to all of it. I mean, as I tell my students all the time, like, you know, read widely, you know, pay attention to the media. Um, you know, think about kind of what these these things mean and um, think about kind of, you know, how you can intervene in them, you know, whether it's something simple like writing a letter to the editor or writing an op-ed or, you know, pitching a column or, you know, what ways can you um, intervene in conversations, intervene in policy all of those types of stuff. I think there's a lot we should be paying attention to. And then, you know, it, it might sound so cliche, but it's like, you know, nobody can sleep on elections. Like elections just matter too much. Yes. Like it matters, you know, at the national level. It matters at the state level. It matters at the local level. It matters who is being elected to your local school boards mm-hmm. because those people are making decisions about sex education curriculum. And those people are making decisions about what books may or may not appear in the library of your kids. So um, I, I think it's all important. And I think that 
you know, particularly in the wake of Roe v. Wade being overturned, we need to pay attention. And if we're not paying attention, it's at our own peril. Thanks for listening to Terms of Service, a podcast series starring Alex Kakesi and myself. Today's interview was with Dr. Lynn Camella, professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. You can find more of her work on her website, lynncamella.com, or by reading her book, Vibrator Nation, How Feminist Sex Toy Stores Change the Business of Pleasure. Terms of Service is a Pornhub podcast. Our executive producers are Alex Kakesi, Ezra Paget, and me, Asa Akira. Our producer is Ryan Woodhall. Thank you to Ian, Eduardo, Michael, Sana, and the whole Pornhub team. Also our LA team, Bryce Halleck and George Kimmel. And of course, to all of our wonderful guests.